Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the very beginning of your Bible, the very first book, which is the book of Genesis, which means the book of beginnings. And I want you to turn in the book of Genesis to chapter number 37. Now, how many people do we have? I'm going to see some hands today. How many people here are math lovers? You absolutely love math. Okay, quite a number of you. All right, now I'm going to ask you another question. How many of you are excited about equations? Let me see those hands. Yeah, there's a bunch of them out there. You guys are amazing to be excited about equations. You know, the world's most famous equation, no doubt, is the equation that Einstein came up with, which is E equals MC squared. Yeah, many of you can recite that one. Um, I don't really understand everything about that. I'm not a physics guy. I do understand that the E stands for energy and the M stands for mass and C represents the speed of light, which is squared. I understand there's some equivalency there when you take something's mass and you multiply it by the speed of light squared. It somewhat equals the energy that that object may have. So I'm not a big equations guy, but I have another equation I want to set before us today, and that equation goes like this, P plus P plus P equals P equals H. Now, for those of you who are really into equations, you understand that's not a real a true equation because I'm using the same letter to represent different things. So this is a Bruce equation, and the Bruce equation is saying this that God's promises plus God's providence plus God's presence equals perspective that equals hope. And I believe this little equation, this little Bruce equation is a transgenerational equation. It doesn't make any difference what generation that you live in, this equation is always true. Now we have launched in the last week or so, a new series that we've entitled Hope Through Hardship, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And if you weren't here last time, I would encourage you to go ahead and listen to the message from last week because we spent a lot of time meeting Joseph. And we noticed that Joseph came out of a very dysfunctional environment. There was deception, there was favoritism, there was pride, there was jealousy, there was resentment, there was passivity, there was strife, there was conflict in his environment. And we, did, we looked at all of that last time just to, to basically set up an atmosphere to begin to look at the hardship that Joseph went through. And so today we're going to look at his hardship, really in essence, phase one. And then in today's plan, we're going to do two things. As we look at this first facet of hardship that he had to face, we're going to, number one, look at the events, and then number two, we're going to look at some lessons that we can learn from those events. So let's begin by looking at these events that happen in this first part of hardship that he experiences, and it all begins really in verse 3. It says there that now Israel, which is really the other name for Jacob that God had given to him, 
Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. We saw last time it was a spectacularly colorful ornamental robe. And even though Joseph was the 11th son, he was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife. And this very spectacularly colorful ornamental robe indicated that Joseph, even though he was the 11th born, was going to be designated the leader of the family, that he would get the biggest chunk of the family inheritance. And by the way, Jacob was loaded. He was an incredibly wealthy individual. So you start talking about getting the biggest chunk of the family inheritance, and that was a significant thing. Notice in verse 4, it says, His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. That was the situation. That was the environment. And then God gives to Joseph a dream. You know, and in the era before there was scripture existing, God would frequently speak through dreams. And so he gives to Joseph this dream. He begins to relate the dream to his brothers in verse 7. And he says, in this dream, we were all binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, brothers, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And what was the response? Verse 8. And the brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us, you stupid little young guy? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he had a second dream. We we see that in verse 9. And he told his brothers, he says, lo, I've had this other dream. And behold, in the dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars... What were they doing? What does he say there? They were bowing down to me. And he related this to his father and to his brothers. And his father even rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers, all of them, actually bow ourselves down before you to the ground? In verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying, in mind. You know what these dreams were? They were like waving a red blanket in front of an angry bull. Wasn't getting the response that he thought he maybe would get. Well, then something interesting happens in verse 12 and following. The brothers went to pasture their father's flock in this place called Shechem. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that Shechem was a very significant location because his brother Simeon and his brother Levi had tricked the men of Shechem and basically ended up wiping them all out, running a sword through all of them when they were disabled. And you wonder, what is, what is Jacob even thinking here? Is this another one of those passive things? Hey, you know what? You need to go out and you need to take care of all the flocks. Uh, why don't you go up to Shechem? To Shechem? I mean, you know, those men had to have had friends in that area and you're going to take the brothers up there? where maybe revenge could be wrought on them. He says, no, that's what I want to have done. And then he says to Joseph, 
hey, you know what, Joseph? I think I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you out there. And uh, I want you to go in verse 14. I want you to check out how everything's going. Are your brothers really doing what they ought to be doing out there? Check on them and the welfare of the flock. And then I want you to bring word back to me. So Joseph goes. And, and by the way, from Hebron, where he, he was, to Shechem was a 60-mile walk. So he had to walk 60 miles to go check on his brothers. And then he gets there, and he says, where are my brothers? And they said, well, they're not here. They went to Dothan, and Dothan's another 12 miles to the north. So he has to walk 72 miles to go check up on his brothers. Notice what it says at the first part of verse 18. When they saw him from a distance. You know, you're wearing a spectacularly colorful, technicolor dream coat, and you're going to be obvious from a long way away. They saw someone coming. Who is that? Aha, that's Joseph. Look at that stupid coat that he has. And before he came close to them, verse 18, they plotted against him to put him to death, and they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now, here's what we're going to do. Let us kill him, verse 20, and we'll throw him into one of these pits that are out here. And we'll just make up the excuse that a wild beast devoured him. Then we're going to find out what happened with all of his dreams. <laughs> Let's kill the guy, and his dreams will be dead. And not only that, but that'll mean more money in the inheritance for us. I find it interesting when I read through this that there seems to be no consideration on the part of the brothers here that God had given to Joseph these dreams never even crosses their mind. Well, then notice what it says in verse 21. When Reuben, who was the, the firstborn of all of them, heard this, he rescued them out of their hands. He said, let's not kill the young dude. He said, we don't want to shed any blood. Let's just throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but let's not do anything physically to him. And it tells us that Reuben was thinking that he might rescue Joseph out of their hands and restore him to his father. Now you read all of that and you wonder, what's really going on here? I mean, why is Reuben, who's really shown no leadership whatsoever, suddenly standing up and saying, no, 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 you don't want to kill him? Well, I think part of the answer is that, you know, Reuben is the firstborn. And it was normal for the firstborn to get the majority of the blessing. And if you were with us last time, you know that Reuben was on thin ice with his father Jacob because he had committed incest with his stepmother Bilhah. And here's what I think is happening. Reuben feels a little insecure and he's still thinking about, I'd like to be the one who gets the majority of the inheritance. And, and I'm, I'm getting this idea, hey, if I'm involved in killing off the favorite son... I'm never going to get the biggest portion of all of this. So basically, he just says, hold off. Let's not do that. Let's not shed blood. And then in verse 23, it says that when Joseph reached his brothers, they just stripped him of his coat, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. But the pit was empty without any water in it. 
And then they sat down to eat a meal. So just picture this. Joseph's just, you know, everything's going good. I got the wonderful coat. I'm in line for the number one inheritance. I'm showing up to check on my brothers. Suddenly they jump on me. They rip my clothes off. They rough me up. They toss me down into this pit. And then they're on top of the pit and they start eating the food, likely food that was brought to them by Joseph himself. And while they're sitting around eating, Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it is in it for us? And you might underline that phrase because that's a key phrase if you mark your Bible. What profit is it for us to kill the brother and just cover up his blood? I mean, we don't get anything financially out of that deal. You know what would be a better deal? What if we sold him and we made some cash? That's a lot smarter in my mind. So he says in verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And and, and the brothers listened to him. And so some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him out of the pit and they lifted him out and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Let's just sell him for some money. Let's make some money out of this deal. He's probably going to die anyway at the hands of strangers. Now, let's just freeze frame for a moment. What do you think Joseph was feeling at this point? What were his emotions as this was happening? Well, if you keep your finger here, you can go over to chapter 42 and verse 21. Because later on, when the brothers become known to Joseph. This is what they are reflecting on. Chapter 42 and verse 21. Chapter 42, verse 21. They say to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not Listen, therefore his distress has come upon us. See, he was going through incredible shock. He had no idea this was coming. He was experiencing fear. He had these feelings of betrayal. This was a blind side. And he was feeling despair and panic. And he was disoriented. What's going on here? Suddenly I'm stripped of everything and I'm thrown into this pit and I hear them talking about killing me. Wow. And now they're going to sell me off into slavery? How could they do this to me? How could they do this to me? And no doubt he was thinking, where is God in all this? Why is this happening? And it says that he begged them. Don't do this to me, brothers. Sell me off into slavery. I'm never going to see my dad again. I'm never going to see young Ben again. And, And the life of a slave, oh my gosh. All that that could mean. I think God had given me this dream and that's probably going to be gone forever. And then the normal thing when he is sold off is that he would have been shackled because you know you don't want him running away on the way to Egypt. And so being shackled, he had to walk with them 250 miles to Egypt. 
And how long that took, I don't really know. I don't know how many miles they might have made every day. I don't know how many times they might have stopped and gotten drunk and party or maybe bought some other slaves to sell in Egypt. But can you imagine 250 miles of a walk to Egypt? And by the way, you remember, this is a family that was masters of deception. And in verse 29, what happens is Reuben comes back because he was gone when all this was happening. He suddenly goes, oh my gosh, what have you done? What are we going to do? And so it says in verse 31, they took Joseph's coat and they slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. We got to come up with this deception. By the way, you know, a, a really good deception has a lot of subtleness to it. And rather than coming back with the totally canned story, it's interesting what they do in verse 32. They bring the tunic to their father and they say, hey, dad, we just found this. Would you take a a look at it and see whether or not it's Joseph's? I mean, it, it would be obvious it would be Joseph's. There's not that many Technicolor dream coats lying around. But dad, we don't, we don't really know, dad, what happened. Why don't you, you look at it and, and try to figure out if it's really your son Joseph's. You know, when I, I think about this, I, I think about a principle that's in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Remember how Jacob had been so deceptive himself multiple times in his life? And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And that's, in essence, what was happening to Jacob. And I think that's a challenge for all of us who are parents and all of us who are leaders, all of us who have someone else watching us. We begin to practice some negative behavior. And we'll find that we will tend to reap what we sow. Now, I want us to understand, this was very significant hardship for Joseph. I mean, this was completely unexpected. It was just like he had been hit by a train coming through. I mean, things were going so well. Everything was great. I'm the favorite son. I've got the coat that indicates I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to get the majority of the inheritance. God doesn't my dad doesn't even make me work at all. He doesn't want me to sweat in this really cool coat. So I'm just checking on the brothers. I've had these dreams. Everything is going great in my life. And then it just jumped up and bit him. And that is often how hardship hits us. Things are going good and then boom. Think of the life of Job. You know, Job's life was going good. I mean, Job was extremely prosperous. His health, awesome. He had 10 children. He was blessed by God. And then, boom, there's this avalanche of hardship that comes in his life. Think of the life of David. You know, David had this incredible victory. Remember when David took on Goliath? Oh, the number one warrior in all of the land. And he had a victory over Goliath. And he was a hero. Everyone was going, David, David, David. And then he gets anointed to be the next king. And then, boom, he spends 10 years running for his life from Saul. Just the way it tends to happen. 
Think about the disciples and Jesus. Remember that day when they came in, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and everyone's saying, hail, king of the Jews, hail, king of the Jews, and the disciples are going, yes, here we go. And then, boom, within hours, people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Most of you are aware of uh, the story of my son Kyle and his wife Brittany, you know, who carried a nine-month baby to full term, and they were shopping for a stroller, and then boom, they're suddenly shopping for a casket. Can you identify with the way hardship often hits us? You know, things seem to be going just fine, and then boom, my business fails, or boom, I, I lose my job, or, or boom, I get this dire medical diagnosis, or suddenly my child rebels, or my marriage crumbles, or a loved one who I love so much, who meant so much, is suddenly gone and left this world, or I have been betrayed. It just happens like that. So how do we find hope through hardship? And I believe that part of the answer is found in God's promises. And I want you to know, I believe that's what Joseph did. He found hope in God's promises. Now, there's a not a lot recorded for us about his initial responses to things. So you have to somewhat read between the lines. But he had seemingly lost everything, and I believe he had a lot to think about and a lot to pray about over those 250 miles of a journey traveling shackled. And I believe that he began to think about God's promise, God's promises, and in, in, in two ways. His promise that he is good and God's promise that my destiny is sure. I, I, have, I have confident that Joseph was thinking along those two lines. You know, he had learned about God from his father, Jacob, and with all of Jacob's warts and everything else, despite all of his personal failures in his life, he, Jacob, believed that God was good and God was faithful, and he taught Joseph that. And so the first thing we want to look at is his promise that he is good. And Scripture affirms very clearly that God is good. David wrote Psalm 34, 8, and he's writing this psalm right in the middle of incredible hardship, and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 68 says to God, you are good and you do good. David says in Psalm 145, Verse 9, the Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. His promise is that he is good. I want you to turn with me to the next book in the Bible, to the book of Exodus in chapter number 33. Exodus 33. And... Um, Verse 19, 
Moses says to God in, in, the next, in the previous verse, he says, I pray, God, I want you to show me your glory. And here's what God says to him in verse 19 of Exodus 33. He says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. You want to learn something about me? I'm going to tell you about my goodness. It's going to pass right in front of you. So then let your eyes go down to chapter 34, verse 5 and following. So the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, here is the goodness of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. The goodness of God is that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And the goodness of God is he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, when life falls apart, who do we look to? Who did Joseph look to? I believe he looked to God who is good. When life falls apart, what do we reach for? We need to reach for the truth that we have in this book that tells us about the goodness of God. You know, we're an interesting brood. It's interesting how we, we tend to, to think things through and how we tend to do things. You know, you know, when you've been looking for a job and you find a job, we say, God is good. When you have been diagnosed with cancer and you undergo treatment and they tell you you're in remission and you're cancer-free, we say, God is good. When we have a baby that is born completely healthy, we say, God is good. But here's the question. Is God only good when things turn out well? See, the truth is that God is good all the time. Though we may not really see that at a given moment, we may not necessarily feel that, it does not change that. And because God is good, he is able to bring good from bad. William Carey, who's considered the father of modern missions, sailed with his family to India in 1793. Kind of amazing to think about it, to preach the gospel. There was virtually no Christian witness in that massive nation at all in 1793. Carey's motto was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And four years later, he had translated the entire New Testament into Bengali, and two years later, he was just two books shy of the entire Old Testament. And then, boom, there was the fire that destroyed valuable manuscripts, books, and type. It was a very severe fire. It was estimated to have caused $50,000 in damages and, and that's a lot of money. In, in today's money, that would be multiple millions. And of course, the translation work stopped dead in its tracks. 
Years of painstaking, difficult work vanished in a matter of minutes. Boom. Devastating hardship. But God, who is good, can bring good from bad. And as the word filtered back to England, the churches there began a fundraising drive, and in six weeks, they raised enough money to replace the press. And then the word kind of went out further in the Christian community, and more and more people became aware because of the fire that had occurred of what Kerry was doing. And as a result, more people than ever said, we want to financially support this. And more people than ever said, we want to go to India also. And as a result of that particular loss, more funds and more workers poured into India. So that by the time of his death, Kerry had founded 26 churches, 126 schools, translated the scripture into 44 languages, produced many grammars and dictionaries, and organized India's first medical mission, their first savings bank, and the very first seminary. See, that devastating loss, the goodness of God used to bring great gain. Dr. Ed Young tells the story of Brenda and George Heterhorst. Uh, Their 12-year-old daughter, Shannon, died inexplicably in her sleep, never having shown any symptoms of acute diabetes that actually was a thing that caused her death. And until that tragedy, her mom, Brenda, had lived what many would call a charmed life. She was reared by godly parents, accepted Christ as her savior as a girl of 10. She married her college sweetheart, who was a fine Christian man. She was steadfastly convinced that God's promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 was hers, that he had a plan for her life, and her future was one of hope, not misfortune. When 12-year-old Shannon died, Brenda met with grief in a profoundly personal way because she'd not experienced such loss before. She began reading books about others who had lost children. Friends continued to pray for this family as they struggled to put their lives together again. As God healed their hearts, he also built into them a compassion for others who had experienced similar loss. He writes, today, George and Brenda minister to families who have lost children through a support group called Lost and Found. They are uniquely equipped for this ministry in a way few are because they've lived through a similar loss and emerged whole on the other side. People who meet Brenda today are often surprised to learn her story. She is not bitter, nor does she question God's wisdom. Instead, she thanks him for 12 wonderful years with her oldest daughter. And when people ask how many children she has, her frequent answer is three, one in heaven and who's with Jesus and two here on earth with us. See, in the goodness of God, God is able to bring good from bad because he is good. God brings good out of our hardship. The same thing is gonna happen with Joseph as we stick with the story. And the same thing is part of God's plan for you and for me. No, I'm not going to stand up here and be real theoretical or really be dishonest and say that, oh, you know, you'll know what the good is. Just, Just wait a few hours, a few weeks, and you'll see it. To be honest, it's possible we may not see the good in this life. 
we may not understand the good in this life. And part of that is because God works mysteriously. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, when we get to heaven and all is revealed, when we really see the whole story, he said the first words we're going to utter are, of course, of course. It makes sense now. See, I believe that God's promises are something that Joseph clung to and that we need to cling to. The first one is that God is good. The second one is that my destiny is sure. And I'm confident that on that 250-mile trek and the days that followed, he was reviewing through everything that happened. And he was thinking back to those dreams where God had revealed himself to Joseph. And God basically said, you have a destiny, my son, and your destiny is sure. And so we need to do the same thing in the midst of hardship. We need to review and remember our destiny that we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that destiny because of him is sure. It is a promise we can count on that no matter what happens, no matter what the hardship may be, I am a child of the one true king. And I can count on that. John 14, 3, remember when Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you and I will come and I will receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Your destiny is sure. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down. When we die and leave these bodies, we will have a home in heaven. Our destiny is sure. So no matter what the hardship may be, no matter the failure even that we have, no matter the tragedy, one thing we have we cannot lose, and that is that I am a child of the one true You know what I, I have observed, that we have a particular tendency, particularly as it relates to hardship, we have this tendency to define our life by the difficulty, by the failure, by the tragedy that has befallen us. So we tend to look at ourselves and we say, you know, well, I am the divorcee. I, I am the jobless person. I am the, the single mom. I am the widower. I am the one who's disabled I am the victim of abuse. I, I, I'm the parent who lost a child. I'm the one who received a dire diagnosis. I'm the one who came out of a dysfunctional, a horribly dysfunctional family. I'm the one who was deceived. I'm the one who was misled. I'm the one who was hurt. We have a tendency to define ourselves by those things. And we need to remember that our hope is found in recalling that our destiny is sure despite the hardship. And when we can get a grip on that perspective, it brings great hope into our life. Even though we may be in the most messy situation we have ever experienced. A young man cowered in the corner of a dirty, roach-infested death row cell in a South Carolina prison. His body curled in a fetal position. He seemed to be totally oblivious to the filth and the stench around him. 
His name was Rusty, and he was sentenced to die for the murder of a Myrtle Beach woman in a crime spree that left four people dead. Police arrested 23-year-old Rusty Wellborn following one of the most brutal slayings in South Carolina history. Rusty was tried for murder and received the death penalty for his crime. Bob McAllister, deputy chief of staff to South Carolina's governor, became acquainted with Rusty on death row. You see, Bob had become a believer a year or so earlier, and he felt a strong call from God to minister to the state's inmates, especially those who were spending their last days on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed that he mattered to nobody. The only signs of life in the cell were the roaches who scurried over everything, including Rusty himself. He made no effort to move or even to brush the insects away. He stared blankly at Bob as he began to talk, but he did not respond. During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him of the love that Jesus had for him and of his opportunity, even on death row, to start a new life in Christ. And he talked and prayed continuously, and finally, Rusty began to respond to the stranger who kept invading his cell. Little by little, he opened up, until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. And on that day, Rusty Wellborn, a pitiful man with murder and darkness behind him and his own death closing in ahead of him, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. When Bob returned to Rusty's cell a few days later, he found a new man. The cell was clean and so was Rusty. He had renewed energy and a positive outlook on life. McAllister continued to visit him regularly, studying the Bible and praying with him. The two men became close friends over the next five years. In fact, McAllister said that Rusty grew into the son that he never had. And as for Rusty, he had taken to calling McAllister Pap. Very different from the John Denver song. Over those weeks, Bob learned that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia had been anything but almost heaven. Rusty's family was destitute, and he was neglected and abused as a youngster. School was an ordeal both for him and for his teachers. Throughout his junior high years, he wore the same two pair of pants and two ragged shirts. And out of shame and frustration, Rusty quit school in his ninth grade year, a decision that was to be just the beginning of his troubles. His teenage years were full of turmoil as he was kicked out of his home many times and ran away countless others. He spent the better part of his youth living under bridges and in public restrooms. Bob taught Rusty the Bible, but Rusty was the teacher when it came to love and forgiveness. This young man, who had never known real love, was amazed and thrilled about the love of God. He never ceased to be surprised that other people could actually love someone like him through Jesus Christ. And Rusty's childlike enthusiasm was a breath of fresh air to Bob, who came to realize how much he had taken for granted, especially with regard to the love of his family and friends. And not only did Rusty teach Bob McAllister how to love and forgive, he also taught him a powerful lesson about how to die. As the appointed day approached, Rusty exhibited a calm assurance like Bob had never seen. 
On his final day, with only hours remaining before his 1 a.m. execution, Rusty asked McAllister to read to him from the Bible. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat up on the side of his cot and he said, you know, the only thing I ever wanted was a home, pap. Now I'm going to get one. Well, Bob continued reading from the Bible. And after a few minutes, Rusty grew very still. And thinking he had fallen asleep, Bob placed a blanket over him and closed the Bible down. And as he turned to leave, he felt this strong compulsion to lean over and kiss Rusty on the forehead. Short time later, Rusty Wellborn was executed for murder. And a woman who was assisting Rusty in his very last moments shared this postscript to his story. As he was being prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, what a shame that a man's got to wait till his last night alive to be kissed and tucked in for the very first time. You see, men and women, no matter the pain, no matter the failures, no matter the difficulty, no matter the adversity, no matter the disability, no matter the disappointment, no matter the hardship that we face, when we know Jesus Christ, he promises that our destiny is sure. And when we focus on that promise, it brings great perspective and great hope in our life. I'm not sure what you face today. I I don't really know what you or I are going to face tomorrow. But I think all of us need to heed the words of songwriter Babby Mason in her songs when she, she writes this as the chorus. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, Trust his heart. Let's pray together as the worship team comes to lead us in a final concluding song. Father, we just thank you for the story of Joseph. It's just utterly amazing. It's the word of God that's a living book that can teach us a story from so many centuries ago that's right where we live our lives. Father, may we be encouraged as we see him trusting in your promises that you are good and that you know because of what you've done that our destiny is sure. Help us to have that perspective when we find ourselves under the weight of hardship in our life. May we remember that you are too wise to be mistaken. You're too good to be unkind. So when we don't understand, when we don't see your plan, when we can't trace your hand, We can trust your heart. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.